Let's go to Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. We've got a long way to go tonight. And you can plug that in whenever you're ready. Or this morning, I mean. I will say I am extremely excited about teaching this morning because this is a subject that I've never taught before. Um, And because it is a subject that I've never taught before, that may be the reason why uh, I have so much um, information. Because it's something that that as I began to study, I saw it's it's all over Scripture. It's something I, I, I didn't realize was as over Scripture as I thought it was. Uh, And you'll see that hopefully this morning. So let's pray. Let me get a real quick drink and we'll get into this lesson for this morning. Father, we come before you in Jesus name. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your loving kindness. Lord, I decrease so that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way this morning. Keep my my thoughts submitted to your word. I pray that your people would not hear me or see me, but hear and see your word and understand your word. Keep them from error, believing lies and keep me, Lord, from teaching error and teaching lies. I yield to your word, your spirit. And Lord, I thank you that you will do all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. The last time that we were together, we were talking about and discussing the glory of God. We learn that all things begin and end with the glory of God. Above all, God is glorious and is worthy of all praise and all honor from all of his creation. All of the glory, all of the honor is to God and to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria, as we said last week. That is where the Bible begins and because we're going through this series on the doctrine of uh, the doctrines of grace, it is important to remember that when anyone asks you, what is Reformed theology? What is the doctrines of grace? What is Calvinism? What is the tulip? You begin with the glory of God, Amen. the glory of God. The doctrines of grace begin with the glory of God, the Westminster Westminster shorter catechism. It says this. What is the chief aim or chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All things that have transpired, all things that are right now transpiring and all things that will transpire in the future have one overarching purpose. And that purpose is for the glory of God. This doctrine of the glory of God is foundational for all that we do. The doctrine of the glory of God is foundational for all that we are. And this doctrine of the glory of God is also connected to another foundational truth. And that is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Let me ask you a question as we embark on this great lesson. How many of you believe in the sovereignty of God? I'd like to see your hand. How many of you believe in the sovereignty of God? Let me try that one more time so that we can get 100% participation. How many of you believe in the sovereignty of God? That looks like it's almost everyone except for Nick. Was that you, Nick? You did raise your hand? Okay. 
I have never come across a Christian who has not believed in the sovereignty of God. Meaning that when you ask them, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? I've never once come across a Christian who says, no, I don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Every single Christian says that they believe in the sovereignty of God. I would like you to think past the casual agreement of the idea of the sovereignty of God for a moment. And I would like you to think deeper about that doctrine. When you think about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, I want you to think, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be sovereign? And by you affirming the sovereignty of God, what are you affirming? Well, you may say it means that God is in control. God, the creator, he's watching over us. He provides for us. God is sovereign. Usually... The answer to that question is very shallow and not specific. When it comes to clearly defining what do we mean by the sovereignty of God, I'd like you to think for a moment. If, if you know that the ground level of the sovereignty of God or sovereignty means God is in control, then I would like to follow up that idea with a question, just how sovereign is the sovereign God. You say that he's in control and that would be the most basic answer, but I would follow it with how control, how in control is he? You say he's in control. How in control is he? How much control does he have? How sovereign is the sovereign God? Let us not insert or import our own ideas or our own opinions into this matter. Let us not trust ourselves with our own definitions of the sovereignty of God. Why? Look at me for a moment. Because you and I are sinful. And because we are sinful, it is our natural desire to put restrictions on God. It is our natural desire to put limitations on God, especially when it comes to the subject of the sovereignty of God, because sovereignty at the ground level, as we are saying, means control. So when I say just how much in control, our natural reaction is to say, well, and start to put limitations on that control. Rather than defining this doctrine ourselves, let's go to the scriptures. And let's see what God says about this matter. Let's go to the scriptures and let's see how God defines his sovereignty. Let's go to the scriptures and let's let God show us how sovereign God is. And in the process, let our mouths be closed to any objections concerning the claims that God makes about himself. Isaiah 46, verse 9. And I I suggest you read all of Isaiah 46 because it is very interesting. Remember the former things. Actually, let's stand for the reading of the word. We haven't done that in a while. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. And there is no one like me, 
What do you mean, God? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. In the midst of idol worship that was going on in Babylon, God makes one thing abundantly clear. He is God. God clearly points out that he is God. He is in a class all by himself. There is no other except God. And God does not share his throne with anyone. There is no one even worthy of being close to that throne. No one worthy of praise except for God. Now listen, God makes a distinction between himself and the false gods that were being worshipped in Babylon. The distinction is this. God is sovereign and they are not. He says, verse 9, I am. Ego e me. I am God. And there is no one like me. Here's the distinction. I'm God. And they're not. Here's the distinction. I'm sovereign. And they're not. What do you mean by sovereign, God? Verse 10, he tells you, I declare the end from the beginning. From the ancient times, things which have not been done. Saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. It says me, but my good pleasure. Did you catch the distinction there? God is saying the vast difference between those so-called gods that are being worshipped in Babylon and me is that I'm God and they're not. The distinction is I'm sovereign and they're not. The distinction is I determine the beginning and the end and they can't. But this is more than just God having foreknowledge. Get this. This is more than just the foreknowledge of God having having an understanding of what's going to happen in the beginning and having understanding or knowing of what's going to happen in the end. Sovereignty and omniscience are two totally different ideas, but they are interwoven into the supreme being of the great I am. One, the omniscience speaks of God's all knowingness. He knows all. Now, let me ask you a question. Look at me. Do you believe that God knows all things? Do you believe that God knows the beginning from the end? Okay. Of course you do. But the question that I would follow up with is, how does he know all things? And listen, how does he know the beginning from the end? Does not the screenwriter know the plot When the plot thickens and when the plot thins, of course he does. The question is, and the obvious answer to that is, because he wrote the story. Is there anything in the story written by the screenwriter that surprises him in the story that he wrote? You ever wrote a story when you were a little kid and 
As you were writing it, you, you read it over and you said, Oh, I can't believe that happened. You wrote the story. You wrote the beginning from the end. So it is with God. He has written the story. He's produced the story. And he's starring in the show. All things that have transpired are because God is sovereign. Meaning God has ordered and ordained all that has happened to happen in the way in which he ordained it to happen. He wrote the story. He is ordering all of history. He is. It's his story. Remember that from last week? He's ordering all things, even the things that have not yet happened, which means this. There is nothing random in the mind of God. In all of creation, all things that have happened are not random. If they are random, then there is no order. And if there is no order, then God is not in control. And you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. When you say it was by chance, it was by luck, you're saying random things happen out of nowhere. Instead, God ordained it. The sovereign Lord says that all things have all things have been ordered. And the things that have been ordered and ordained cannot resist the hand of God. Verse 10 says, my purpose might be established. It depends on if mankind is willing to work with me. Is that what it says, Philip? My purpose will be established no matter what you want to do. And he also goes on to say, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So what I want to do will be done. And the good things that I want to come out of it will come out of it for my good pleasure. When God declares the beginning from the end, it happens. When God says this is what it will be, that is what it will be. God is not like some of our parents who said it will and then you really know it won't. God is the parent who, when they said it will, you know, daddy's not playing. Whatever God has been has planned will be accomplished. And nothing happens that God did not purpose to happen. Think about this. Why did God put purpose inside of that phrase in verse 10? Because out of that act, whether that act was glorious or whether that act was appalling, God had a purpose therein. Whether it was appalling or whether it was glorious, God was going to use whatever happened for his good pleasure and purpose. It may not make sense when it happens, but you're not God. He is. You may not understand why it's happening, but you're not God. You don't know the beginning from the end. You're in the story right now and you haven't written it. All you can do is trust the screenwriter that he's good. We are not sovereign and we cannot see the beginning from the end. God always does and has a purpose in the things that he does. This is important. 
Because if there is no purpose in the things that happen, then you cannot trust the God who's allowing it to happen. If there is no purpose in the things that are happening, then you cannot trust the God who is allowing it to happen. Put that into every circumstance, situation, and any other thing you can think out of that has ever happened in all of history. God has a purpose for it all. If not, then God's response is, I tried to stop it, but I failed. Is that the God you serve? I wanted to, but man wouldn't cooperate. Is this the accurate description that God gives of himself in Scripture? If that is the case, then we are not dealing with a sovereign God. We are dealing with a weak God. And sadly, this is the God that many people portray God to be. He's trying. He really wants to. You ever hear people say stuff like that? Do you think if God really wanted to do something, it'd be done? I think so. That's what sovereignty is all about. If God knows all things that are happening, ordained all things that are happening, then he has a purpose ultimately that will bring glory to himself in all of these happenings. And then let our mouths be closed and let God be praised. Listen, from the smallest details to the largest of details, God is sovereign and ruler and ordainer of all those things. Look at uh, verse number 11. Calling, he says, calling a bird of prey to the east. Can you imagine? And the man of my purpose from a far off country. Truly I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. From the smallest detail, like sending a bird to the east. Do you think that God would even be concerned with that? But he says, you need to go this way. And also calling a man for his great purpose from a far off country says you come. From the smallest of details to the largest of details, God is in control of them all and aware of them all. I would like to show you biblically three aspects that I pray you see encompass all that we can imagine concerning the sovereignty of God. Number one, God is sovereign over nature. God is ruler over all of nature. It was God who in the very beginning commanded, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated. This just blows my mind. Separates light from darkness. You know that switch that you turned on? There was no switch. God just said, light, dark. And it responded to the sovereign God. God commanded light and light broke forth. Light had no choice but to submit to the beckoning of God's command. From there on, God separates waters and from the land and the waters and the land obey the sovereign God. From there, the sun and the moon and the stars begin to shine and light up and line up in perfect formation as they obey the command of God. Land sprung from the ground. Seeds broke forth and produced fruit because God commanded it. Living creatures on the land, in the sea, in the air came forth as God, the sovereign Lord, commanded Man formed out of the dust of the ground. We were nothing but a mere sand sculpture until God breathed into us the breath of life. Why is the sun shining right now? Because God is commanding it to shine. 
burn at all of those millions or thousands of degrees. He's commanding burn right now. Why are you breathing right now? Because God has commanded breathe. God is sovereign over nature. It was God who called forth the clouds to produce something the world had never seen up until that point in history. Water from heaven called rain. The Bible says in Genesis 7, 4, I will send rain. Who will send rain? God will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. God sends rain. Who administers justice on his creation that he was going to destroy? God does. The only one who has the authority to do so, the sovereign Lord. The Bible says in verse 11 of chapter 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, seventh, or second month, 17th day, the foundations of the great deep burst open. And the floods, floodgates of the sky were open. Rain fell upon the earth. It was God who sent Moses into Egypt. And in doing so, used signs from nature to authenticate Moses being sent by God. And was sending a message to Pharaoh who was in, a, in Egypt. Who was calling himself God on earth. The message was simple to Pharaoh. God is sovereign and you are not. The message to Pharaoh is simple. He is God and you are not. It was the sovereign Lord who in Exodus chapter 3. Lit a bush that did not consume with fire. It was the sovereign Lord who in Exodus chapter 7. Turned water into blood. It was the sovereign Lord who in Exodus chapter 8. Called the frogs from to and fro to become a plague to the people of Egypt. It was the sovereign Lord who in Exodus chapter 8 demonstrated that he is sovereign and even Lord over the flies. As he called them from the dumps and from the graves and from our picnic tables to be a plague in Egypt. It was the sovereign Lord who in Exodus chapter 9 struck the livestock of Egypt. The horses, donkeys, camels, herds, flocks killed them. While at the same time protecting the livestock of Israel. It was the sovereign Lord who called down hail from the heavens. Called forth the locusts from the land. And closed light of the sun as darkness fell over the land. God is sovereign over nature. All of these things in nature respond to the command of God. Because he is sovereign over them. We can look at example after example in the Old Testament in which God commands nature and nature responds from Balaam's donkey in, in Numbers chapter 22 to Jonah, the great fish that swallowed Jonah in Jonah chapter one. God is sovereign over nature. We look at the God, the son, Jesus Christ, displaying with the authority of the father that he is also sovereign over nature when he calms the storms with just two words. Be Still, and the waves and the winds obey the sovereign Lord. It was Jesus who also turned water into wine. Jesus who defied water by walking on it. And also did what is still so amazing today. Takes five loaves and two fish and feeds over 20,000 people. Sovereign over nature. God is sovereign over earthquakes. They are not a surprise to God. God is sovereign over typhoons. They are not a surprise to God. God is sovereign over tornadoes. God is just as sovereign over the elephant treading upon the African plain. 
as much as he is sovereign over the worm that is crawling in your and my lawn today. He is sovereign over all of nature. The smote, my wife brought this up to me, the smotes that you see flying through this light right here, they are in control of God by God. There is, as R.C. Sproul says, there is there are no maverick molecules in this universe. They are all under the sovereignty of God. Isaiah or Psalm 147. I'm going to read it to you. If you can get there quick, then fine. If not, I'm just going to read and go. Psalm 147. It says this. Starting at verse eight, and you should read the whole chapter. Who covers the heavens with the clouds? Who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast of he gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of man. The Lord favors those who fear him, those who wait for his kindness. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened your bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons with you. He makes peace with your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? Who sends forth his word and melts them? He causes his wind to blow and his waters to flow on and on and on. Throughout all of scripture, you see nature is submitted to God. Now, we may not have a problem with that. God is sovereign over nature. Number two, God is sovereign over nations, meaning people, places and pursuits. Just how sovereign is God? You're okay with rain came from God. You're fine with the snow came from God. But let this next point challenge your notion to the sovereignty of God. We didn't really have a a hard time with. This past point, if God is sovereign over all of creation, the question is, why would anyone think that we are excluded from his sovereign rule? If God is sovereign over nature, why would you think you and I that but that excludes us? Are we excluded from God's control? One may say, well, God wants me to have free will. And because God wants me to have free will, I can do whatever I want. Is that what you believe? If that is what you believe, then let me follow that up with a question. Do you believe that every person is free to do whatever they choose, whenever they want, however they want? And do you believe that that is a good definition of someone or something being sovereign? So there's a yes and a no. The yes of that question is. Someone being able to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, is a good definition of sovereignty. But does that define who you are? If you believe that man is absolutely free to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, then you also believe that man is sovereign. And at the same time, 
You say you believe that God is sovereign. Now we have a contradiction. Because both cannot be sovereign and not not be sovereign at the same time. Well, you say, well, we are free to act. Then I must ask you, is God also free to act? And who of the two of them is more free to act? God or man? The one who is more free to act is the one who is sovereign. And if you agree with what, if you agree that God is the one who is the true sovereign over all, then the question is, if God is sovereign, how can man be free? R.C. Sproul says, when my freedom runs into God's freedom, God's freedom is going to win every single time. I love your silence. So I would like to show you through scripture. God is sovereign over nations, over people and pursuits. And there's three people that I want to bring up. And I was telling my wife, I had a number of people. I just had to pick the juiciest ones. So number one, Pharaoh. Exodus chapter, go to Exodus. You're going to need to be in there. God raised up Moses in the house of Pharaoh. It was God who spared this man from infancy for the purpose of raising him up to be to lead his people out of slavery. Moses left Egypt after murdering a soldier for abusing one of his fellow Hebrews. Some time passes and one day while Moses is tending the flock of his father-in-law, he sees a bush that is on fire but not consumed. It was the sovereign Lord. And his plan was to send Moses back to Egypt with a message to the king of Egypt. Let my people go. And in that message, God was sending yet another message to Pharaoh. You are not the ruler. You are not the sovereign. The great I am is the ruler. The great I am is the sovereign. And before, listen to this, before Moses could take one step back towards the land in which he was raised, God informs him of all the things that will take place when he goes back to Egypt. Before he could step one step back into the direction of Egypt, God tells him before he goes, what's going to happen? Why? Exodus chapter 3 verse 19 says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go. How does God know? Except under compulsion. So I will. Stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. It was God who, before Moses went back to Egypt, tells Moses exactly what's going to happen when he gets there. How does he know? Because the story has already been written. And Pharaoh was to be used in the hand of God for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Exodus chapter 7. Let me show you this interesting thing that's going on. Verse 2. You shall speak, speaking to Moses, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Moses shall speak to Pharaoh that he let the sons of Israel go out of this land. Listen to this. Is it highlighted here? Yes. Go back one one time. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. 
that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, where Pharaoh does not li- when Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. The Egyptians shall know. Here's the purpose that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Now, here, here's this. How did God know that Pharaoh would not listen? Someone said, because he's God. Yes. But there's an overarching truth to that great statement. God was going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. God was going to take his grace off of Pharaoh. God was going to harden his heart. Simply put, God was going to allow Pharaoh to act with the very intentions that were already in his heart. God was going to allow him to be exactly the person that he wanted to be. Prior to you coming to Christ, God was allowing you to be exactly the person that you wanted to be. He, his hand was holding you back from being as bad as you could be. That's called common grace. But he was also giving you enough leash to hang yourself to be the person that you want to be. The person that Pharaoh wanted to be was an evil tyrant who desired to pour out his hate on the people of Israel. And in in doing so, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God took his restricting hand off of Pharaoh and allowed him to pursue those evil intentions. Pharaoh could only go as far as God was going to allow him to go. But it was God who was in control of that leash. That Pharaoh was on each and every time Pharaoh acted, he did exactly what he wanted to do. And exactly what God intended for him to do or exactly what God allowed him to do. He was doing exactly what God had ordained him to do. Why? Because Pharaoh's actions were being shaped for God's glory. God was going to use every single action of Pharaoh's evil intention for the glory of God. Every single time God took his hand off of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart became harder. Then God would once again soften it. And then once again, he would take his hand off and Pharaoh's heart would become hard again. Exodus 9, 12, Exodus 10, 1, Exodus 10, 27, Exodus 11, 10, and the final hardening, Exodus 14, 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. The Israelites, where? To the Red Sea. Is God not planning something? Is God not saying, I'm going to let this man chase them and I'm going to let him chase them to the edge of the sea where there is no way out and where they will cry out. To the only one who is able to save them, ego in me, the great I am. And I will perform a miracle that all of Egypt will see and still to this day talk about and preach about some thousands of years later. And I will be honored, he says, through Pharaoh. I will be honored through Pharaoh. I don't know where that's at. I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know what? That I am the Lord. And they did so. Do you see God is in pursuit of his glory and he, the sovereign Lord, will do and use whatever he has to to get 
his glory. Pharaoh's being used used by God. From generation to generation, that story again is being told and we worship God because of it. But it was God who ordered this to happen. He ordained it and told Moses even before it would happen. This is what was going to happen. Pharaoh was going to be used by God to be to display the glory of God, the sovereignty of God. And in the process, his people would be blessed. This is all over scripture. God is sovereign over nations, large and small people, significant and seemingly insignificant and happenings from a shepherd tending a flock to a man now leading a nation. God is sovereign. The Bible says in Romans 9, 17, <coughs> for the scripture says to Pharaoh, why were you born, Pharaoh? For this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. I let your kingdom be raised. I let your kingdom be built. As a matter of fact, my grace without it, you would not be able to do it. And I was letting you get as strong as you wanted to be so that the day would come when you would recognize you're not as strong as me. There was only one God. And it's not you. The amazing thing is God did not only tell Moses before he went to Egypt. God told Abraham some 600 years earlier. Genesis 15, 13. Know for certain that your strength, your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs. And they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they, they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Hundreds of years earlier, God says, I've already written this out. I'm telling Abraham. And I've got many descendants to come before Moses even goes through this. What's going to happen? You think your story is just by accident? You think the things that you've gone through in your own personal tough life are just the devil attacking you? I heard someone say the other day, the devil took something away from me. Are you going to give the devil sovereignty? Will you attribute to the devil that which is only attributed to God? No, you shouldn't. Only God is in control. Whatever happened, God allowed it for the glory of God. Don't give a devil any praise. He, like Pharaoh, is only going to go as far as God allows him to go. But God is holding the leash. Number two, one of my favorites, Nebuchadnezzar. You may not know about Nebuchadnezzar, but you're going to love the story by the end of this day. Daniel chapter four. Oh, you know the story. I've heard some hums and some. Mm hmms. <clears throat> this may be one of the most interesting displays of God's sovereignty upon the lives of his creation. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. The great nation that had conquered the king, kingdom after kingdom. And God also allowed Babylon to conquer the nation of Israel and take them into captivity because of Israel's idolatry. And one night, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that no one, not even his magicians, can interpret for the king. Finally, Daniel is summoned. Daniel, who had the gift like Joseph to interpret dreams. And he is asked, interpret this dream. Well, here's the dream. Daniel chapter four, verse number 10. 
Now, these were the visions in the mind in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached the sky and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all the beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the vision and in my mind I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree. Cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that they may know. In order that the living may know that the most high is the ruler or sovereign over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon who he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. Tell me what this means, Daniel. No one could give me the understanding of this dream. And Daniel is in shock when he hears this story or this vision. He was so taken back that he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, I wish that this was about your enemies rather than about yourself. But nevertheless, this dream is about you. Judgment is coming on you. This decree is from the Most High. Which has come upon my Lord, that you would be driven away from mankind, that your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, that you be given grass to eat like cattle and drenched with the dew of heaven. And a a seven period of time will pass over you until you recognize the most high is sovereign over the realm of mankind and bestows it upon whom he wish. Daniel, at this interpretation, he urges the king, repent. Repent before it's too late. You you got to turn from your sin. God has set his sights on you in order to make you realize that he is the king and not you. But there was no repentance. Twelve months pass and there's no repentance. Why was there no repentance? Why did this man, after hearing what God was going to do to him, not repent? Because God had not granted repentance in his heart. God had not enabled repentance. God decreed something and that which he decreed will come to pass. One day the king is on on the roof of his palace, walking around, looking at the kingdom of Babylon. And he says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence residence with my might, my power for the glory of my majesty? I love this. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven came saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, it is declared to you, sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind 
And all the things that he said will happen. You're going to be driven to the field. You're going to become like a beast. Your mind will be lost. You will eat grass. Your nails will become long. Your hair will grow like an animal. You are going to lose your mind because I'm taking your mind from you. Now let's see how much glory and splendor and majesty you have. Immediately he lost his mind for seven years. And that which God described would happen, happened just as he said so. Why? Because God was going to make an example out of this man to all the nations that God is God and he is not. Imagine the man who ruled and reigned and pillaged and, and overthrew all nations around him to where Babylon the Great, which we all know, was standing as a high tower. God comes and takes the leader of that nation and says, be like a dog, bark like a dog, meow like a cat, chirp like a bird. And he has no choice but to respond and obey until you recognize I am sovereign and you are not. God brought this man to his knees to show that there is only one Lord, one God, and it is him. He is sovereign over Queen Elizabeth. He is sovereign over the president of Mexico, Enrique Nieto. He is sovereign over Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin. And yes, he's even sovereign over Barack Obama. No one can stay his hand. No one can resist his decree. And after a seven-year period, God gave grace and allowed this animal to become a man once again. And listen to this animal now man's response. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My mind, my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. Praised and honored him who lives forever. And then he gives a psalm. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounting, accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will. In the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? A pagan king, one who does not serve the most high, recognizes that God is most high and that no one deserves praise. Not even himself, but God. He ends his life this way. Can you imagine God takes grace and gives grace and now a pagan king recognizes God is most high. Do you see what God's intention was? You will see that I'm most high God. You will benefit from it and I will get glory. I love that. Number three and done. The Apostle Paul. This man was known as Saul. Philippians 3, 5 says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, law. He was a Pharisee, zeal, persecuting the church, righteousness, blameless. So much of this story, so much to the story, but just to speed up time. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute and drag away Christians to jail. Acts 9, 3. As he's traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus to persecute, Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up. Into the city. And it will be told what you're going to do. God interrupts the path of Saul. Saul has a plan. Saul has a purpose. God has another plan. God has another purpose. Instead of persecuting Christian Saul, you're going to become one. Listen to that. Instead of becoming or persecuting and taking them to jail, you're going to go to jail and you're going to be a Christian. He tells Ananias in verse 15, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the son of Israel. And I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. God is sovereign. Last point over salvation. Who was first to choose in the life of Saul, who later became Paul? Was Saul on his way to Damascus so that he could become a Christian? No. Being a Christian was the last thing on his mind. Look at me. Being a Christian was the last thing on your mind. You weren't thinking about being a Christian when you were doing whatever you were doing. God interrupted your life. He knocked you off of your horse. He took away your blindness and gave you sight. You weren't thinking about God. So who did the first? Who did the choosing at first? Was it you or God? God chose you first. You weren't even thinking about God. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose and I appointed you. Could God have, could Saul have resisted and said, no, I'm not going to go and you can't make me. We failed to mention, I failed to mention that he was also blind, so he wasn't going to go very far. Got knocked off of his horse, so now he ain't got no horse and he's blind. Where you want to go, Paul or Saul? You want to go? Fine. Go your way. Let's see how far you get. Immediately tells him, get up. Go to the city. Now you're mine. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Does it sound like God is open for negotiating right, negotiating right there? Does he say, stop. Does he say like, hey, let's talk about this. If you want to, I'll lay out a contract. You read it. If you like it, sign it. If you don't, go your way. Hey, no harm, no foul. No. Get up and go. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to do from there on. Same with your life. For some reason, you just said, I don't know why I got to be in church. I don't know why I didn't go to the Catholic church. I came here. And then when I, or if I went to the Catholic church, I don't know why I couldn't stay there. I don't know what it was. Something was just, I don't And then we attributed to ourselves. I just wanted more. I, I, I got myself up. One. No, you didn't. God did that. God was working in you in such a way that you don't know what it was. But because we are human and sinful, all we can say is, I did it, I did it, I did it. But it was God who was doing it. And now that you hear it, you realize it was Him all along. God, I love this. I'm going to read it, okay? Does it sound like God was, was okay, no, here we go. Does it sound like God was waiting for Saul's heart to be right? And then when he saw that Saul really wanted to be right with God, then God said, now's the perfect time. Now he wants me. Let me run to the door and answer because he's been knocking. He's knocking now. Let me go answer the, Saul, you finally came. I've been waiting for, that's not what happened. 
Saul was going along his way and God kicked the door open and says, you're coming with me. This is the God, though, that so many people paint the opposite, that he's just knocking. And when you're ready, he's just waiting for you as if God is sitting on his throne, twiddling his thumbs, hoping that little Mark comes to his senses and really wants him one day. What a weak God that would be if that's the God we serve. No, we serve a God who knew you from before time began, loved you from before time began. And when he went to the cross, he had Matt's name on his lips. He had Mary and Martina and John and Lupe and Ellie. He had your name on his lips and he was intentionally coming to save you because you already belonged to him before you even knew it. I have a Filipino friend whose name is German. We used to go to the prison. There was a lady there and he says that lady loves me, but she doesn't know it yet. Filipinos have a way of of making a claim on someone, as I did with my wife before she knew it. And it worked. But when we make God out to be the person who's just waiting for us to get our heart right, then who sounds like the sovereign one in that scenario? A man. And the aim of Reformed theology is to understand God in such a way that he always gets the glory. We are saved when God is ready, not when we are ready. We are saved. And you know why? Because we're never going to be ready. If God left it to when we're ready, and we're going to talk about this next week, total depravity, then we will never be ready. God makes us ready. Just as he made Saul ready, who later became Paul. Let me read this to you in closing. Ephesians chapter 2. And then you can argue with Ephesians if you don't like what I'm saying. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. What does dead mean? It means dead. What can a dead person do? Stink. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our former of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and in the mind and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. But then you decided to just get yourself up and shake it off and get going. It doesn't attribute anything to you. Instead, it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. That is a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for his good works or for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. So it is not for the man who wills or for the man who runs, but God 
who chooses to be merciful to those whom he will be merciful to. John Piper says God has rightful authority, wisdom and power to bring about everything that he intends to happen. Whatever comes about, he intended it to come about. So will we bow or will we stiffen our necks and say, I will not believe in a God that has that much power and that much authority? I said to my brother yesterday as we were driving, I don't have a problem with this. Because I'm chosen. I'm, I'm, I'm God's child. And I don't have a problem saying that either. Because he's my dad, I have no problem saying daddy's in control, not me. If I don't belong to him, I have a huge problem with this. Now, that doesn't mean you can't ask questions. But the complete rejecting of the sovereignty of God is is right now a complete rejecting of God of you. Let's pray.